Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with deadly tornadoes over the weekend that struck Arkansas, Illinois, Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, and in particular Kentucky, where a devastating tornado touched down and stayed on the ground for 227 miles, leaving a wide path of destruction and at least 64 dead, with over 100 unaccounted for. Joining us is Jennifer Marlin, a research scientist and lecturer at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where she studies public perceptions of and responses to environmental change, particularly relating to climate and extreme weather events. We'll discuss the need for not just political leaders to address the role of climate change and more and more extreme weather events, but for the media to get serious about its coverage of the weather and focus more on substance rather than sensation. Then we'll look further into the nature of tornadoes and the greater frequency of them occurring in the winter rather than the spring and whether climate change is a factor since warmer air in the winter makes these extreme weather events possible. Joining us is John Allen, Professor of Meteorology in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Central Michigan University and a leading contributor to research on severe thunderstorm and tornado environments, particularly in the context of climate change. Then finally, with 800,000 deaths now recorded in the U.S. as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, with a greater percentage this year due to the Delta variant, we will speak with Thomas Boyke, Director of the Global Health Program and Senior Fellow for Global Health, Economics and Development at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also a Professor of Law at Georgetown University and the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways, and the founder and managing editor of Think Global Health, an online magazine that examines the ways health shapes economies, societies, and everyday life around the world. He joins us to discuss his recent article at the Wall Street Journal, Getting Vaccines to the World Next Time, and the need not just to produce more vaccines, but to distribute them to everyone on the planet. And before we go to our first guest... In order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but now relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Jennifer Marlin, who's a research scientist and lecturer at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where she studies public perceptions of and responses to environmental change, particularly relating to climate and extreme weather events. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer Marlin. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there have been these unprecedented tornadoes, particularly striking Kentucky, but other neighboring states. And the death tolls are pretty alarming. A lot of people missing. I think what at this point, there's at least 64 dead in Kentucky, 100 unaccounted for. And most uh, analysts have suggested that this is one of the worst tornadoes in history because it was on the ground for such a long time covering a huge swath of the countryside. And it's a bit odd, isn't it? Not Let's just begin with the fact that the worst tornadoes in the country's history have largely occurred between uh, March, April, and May. Why is this one happening in December, which right. so much seems to be out of season? What's the meteorological phenomenon there? Yeah, it, it, you're exactly right. It's not just unusual. It is really deeply shocking. This is not normal by any means. Um, it is 
it's not unheard of to have a tornado in Kentucky or in December necessarily, but it is extremely, extremely rare to have an event this destructive um, in this particular location happening at night um, and covering hundreds of miles, going through four states. Um, it's it's just completely unprecedented, really. This is, I, I mean, the, the details, the comparisons with historical events, um, it, it's kind of just off the charts um, in terms of what we're used to seeing. And so it, it, it is um, the, the particular ingredients that go into an event like this have to align. Um, and so it's just, it, it's very strange for a number of different reasons. And I think this is going to require a lot of analysis and a lot of attention um, going forward to really figure out, is this uh, the sign of what's to come? And obviously the focus in the, the press is now on recovery and, and rescue if possible. But when do you think the focus will shift to what we're talking about, which is this is unprecedented, unusual, and therefore we should be looking at why this is happening? Yeah, well, I think many folks are already thinking about this because it just is is so unusual. And we've seen um, similar concern with other extreme weather events like hurricanes and wildfires. And I think that's why people are immediately just naturally thinking, oh boy, is this related to global warming and carbon pollution? Because for a long time, we thought, um, you know, hurricanes might be changing, but the science was uncertain. And then over the decades, it became very clear um, that the frequency of hurricanes is not increasing, but they are intensifying faster and they're growing larger and they're moving more slowly. Now we now we have the science, but it's taken a couple of decades to, to sort out that connection. And so now we're, we're kind of in a similar position because tornadoes are very um, small compared to hurricanes and they happen so quickly um, that it, it's much harder to figure out exactly what is changing. But we do have some evidence that the location that is changing, they're moving farther to the east, they're happening more east of where they traditionally did. And now, um, you know, they may be changing in terms of their timing as well. Um, and so these all need investigation, but we don't have decades uh, to wait. If this is uh, connected to climate change, and already we know all our other extreme um, weather events, almost all of them are, uh, we need to act now on attacking the root cause. Well, the tornadoes have, in the last uh, few days have not just been in Kentucky. They've been in Mississippi, Missouri, Tennessee, Arkansas, Illinois, largely red states, and I'm wondering at what point, for example, in terms of what happened in Kentucky, would Senator Mitch McConnell step up and say the obvious, that these extreme weather events have something to do with global warming? Will that ever happen? That's a great question. Uh, it, it, what's interesting is that we know the, the public in the red states in the Midwest are much less likely to link events even extreme weather events that we know scientifically are related and made worse by climate change, you know, many folks in those states won't make that connection. And that's it, 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 true of our senators and representatives, um, not just the public. The public often follows what uh, their leaders say, um, and, and we trust our leaders to, you know, to talk about these things and do the right thing. But, um, but you know, having, because tornadoes have always happened in the past, some people may say, well, this is nothing new, but I, I just think it's really hard. It's really hard to say that when you have an event this catastrophic, this tragic, and this unusual in terms of its physical characteristics. But whether this one event is going to persuade the politicians to change um, remains to be seen. I, I think it is a wake up call for these, these central states in particular, um, which maybe haven't experienced the catastrophic wildfires, or the impacts of the really severe hurricanes. Um, but uh, tornadoes are, are definitely, as you said, um, happening in, in all of these traditionally red states. 
And again, I'm speaking with Jennifer Marlin, who's a research scientist and lecturer at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where she studies public perceptions of and responses to environmental change, particularly relating to climate and extreme weather events. So it's not just a problem with politicians and global warming denial, which has been around for some time, but now there's a concern that you know, we had recently had the heads of the big oil companies testify and they all said, oh, no, we've had nothing to do with global warming denial, which is patently untrue. But it seems like their new strategy is, is shifting from global warming denial to global warming delay. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. There is an awful lot of greenwashing going on and delay has proven to be a very profitable strategy uh, for companies with, you know, fossil fuel interests in the past. I mean, this is the same playbook that was used during the tobacco wars. Um, and, and in any situation, um, you know, where you're, you have something to lose, where these companies do, they're going to fight. Um, they're going to fight it. And delay can be very effective. They, they've intentionally tried to confuse the public. It's well-documented. Um, all you have to do is introduce a little bit of doubt and uncertainty, and that makes um, that dilutes public support for action, um, and it allows leaders to uh, drag their feet as well, and and to you know downplay the seriousness, downplay the connections. But the the tragic fact is that this is an incredibly serious uh, change that we were having on our on our climate. And it's not just something that's important for polar bears or developing countries or island nations. It's uh, clearly hitting very close to home. Um, and it's affecting all of us in every state. We are already seeing the impacts of our carbon pollution and the changes that are well underway from our industrial pollution and waste. And um, we, we know exactly how to fix it. And we know that we need to transition to renewable energy, for example. Um, but we need our politicians to act. And we need the companies to be held accountable for what they're doing. And what about the media uh, in terms of being held to account? Because, for example, on television news, where I think people, you know, first of all, Every television station, both local and network, has weather people, usually, you know, either some sort of zany old <laughs> uncle type or, uh, you know, attractive young women almost dressed as if they're going into a nightclub, showing the maps and what's happening with the weather. Obviously, there's a difference between weather and climate, but wouldn't it be more helpful to have more serious people talking about the weather in a more scientific context? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. The media has an enormous role to play because most people are not talking to climate scientists. Most people are not talking about this issue with their family and friends. And so the main way that they're learning about uh, what's happening is through the media. And first of all, the media doesn't mention it nearly as much as it needs to be discussed. And in part, that's a problem with the issue because it's not, you know, considered newsworthy until some catastrophic, tragic event like this happens. So the media could be taking it more seriously, but more importantly, they could just be talking about it more often and helping us see that, in fact, we we have what we need to, we, we know what we need to do in order to start attacking the root cause in a more aggressive fashion to reducing carbon pollution basically and getting more electric vehicles on the road and getting the charging stations up and making our buildings and homes more energy efficient and putting solar panels on top of schools. All of these things can be done if our leaders would act more assertively. And in fact, the public supports all of these actions in, in, lar in a large way. Um, but as you mentioned, there are a lot of you know vested interests that are preventing us from making our environment healthier for improving our transportation system. And so it's really becoming more of uh, a conflict situation where uh, more aggressive action needs to be taken because the longer we wait, the worse this is going to get. And the, the actions we take today have enormous consequences um, for the years to come. 
Well, there were recent reports that News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's and family's company that owned Fox News, were going to get into the weather business. I don't know whether they're going to compete with the Weather Channel, but again, I'm not sure that the Weather Channel deals with climate change very much or in a very useful way. And the idea of you've got climate change deniers like Tucker Carlson and company who the headline is on Fox. So if Fox gets into the weather business and the climate business, and then you might have the worst kind of propaganda. Is that a possibility or certainly a concern? I think that is a concern. Um, the Weather Channel do, has done some important and, and productive work on, on the issue. Um, but, but yeah, the, the changes you're talking about are very concerning because this is one of the few ways that people connect climate change to their daily lives. And it's the way that global warming becomes relevant to us because every day we have to you know, think about the weather and we plan for it. Um, and so if we're not connecting it through our daily weather forecasts and, and explaining that, you know, the warm days we've had recently are, is record-breaking heat and the flooding in uh, New England and in the northeastern states that we've been having is linked to climate change. And it's ultimately caused by carbon pollution. People don't connect these things. And we do need these weather casters to explain this and to help us understand that people are preventing us from protecting ourselves. And we need to hold those people and companies accountable. So do you think that denial is, is a attractive in a way because the truth is so horrible? And for example, we just learned here in California that within a few decades, there'll be no snowpack in the Sierras. That means that there'll be no water melting coming through these canals that they built to ship water from the Sierras down to Los Angeles and other big urban centers. And of course, a lot of it ends up <laughs> being drained into the Pacific Ocean, which seems incredibly dysfunctional to move all that water so far and then to have a lot of it. And particularly when there's a, the rare and insufficient rain that we get in LA, it also ends up draining off into the ocean. So obviously, there's a lot of things that could be done. But the very fact that in a matter of decades, there could be no more snowpack in the Sierras. Would be is it's a devastating prognosis for California's biggest uh, business is ag agribusness. So that you know will become a desert. So it's a shocking revelation, but I don't think people are getting their heads around it in a way that's particularly useful. I think. For those of us who follow this issue at all, even a little bit, I think we're aware of, of some of the consequences. And of some people, I think, tune out because it is too scary to really understand what's happening. But I think for most Americans, um, they don't really know yet how scary it is. I, and, and the kinds of changes you're talking about, the loss of snowpack, um, the impacts that's going to have on water availability, on water quality, um, the impacts that that's going to have on our agriculture and our forests and the way that that uh, drought is going to create wildfires. Uh, I mean, these are cascading events. They're interrelated. Water is related to vegetation changes and, and food and, you know, all of these interconnections does make the issue incredibly scary. Um, and I think for some people, yeah, they shut down if you only focus on the devastating impacts. But I think what, what we need to help people understand is that, yes, th this uh, is incredibly serious, uh, but we, we can act, but we need people to pay attention and we need people to work harder, to engage others, to talk about it. One of the most important things people can do about this issue is simply to talk about it because it's not coming up in the media enough and because our own family and friends are not talking about it enough. And it doesn't mean only talking about the negative impacts. It can be talking about the solutions, um, which in some cases start with individual behavior change, buying um, you know, electric appliances, energy efficient appliances, switching to EVs when your car needs to be retired and so on. But more importantly, it means voting. 
It means getting your friends to vote. It means ensuring that everyone we know has the right to vote. And it means joining organizations and learning from those organizations, uh, because this is a matter of mobilization. And once you see other people acting, it tends to become less scary because you see that we can actually make huge strides if we make the effort. So just in the last minute then, Jennifer, you met, we mentioned earlier big oil is shifting its strategy from global warming denial to global warming delay. And my sense is that there's got to be equally powerful corporations that could join with a more politically active population, which is what you were just suggesting. In other words, insurance companies, other other people that have a stake in, in global warming being <laughs> bad for their business. I mean, obviously, denial and delay is good for the oil companies because we should not be using oil or gas right now. We should, have, we should end it yesterday. That's not necessarily practical, but it's necessary. Is there a possibility of a kind of coalition of big business and political activism as a counterweight to the mendacity of the oil companies? I think we're moving in that direction. The insurance companies, like you say, those who really stand to lose a lot um, from the changes. Also, renewable energy companies um, have a lot to gain. They know that we're going to, some groups and organizations and companies are going to make money in this transition. Um, and, and yet it's, the mobilization and connections and co cooperation among those groups is not yet strong enough. It's not what it needs to be. Um, it, there needs to be better coordination. There needs to be, you know, strong, stronger. It's just it's just making the connections and getting organized um, because right now, the just the uh, inertia in the system uh, due to our historic use of fossil fuels and the money and subsidies that have gone into big oil for so many decades, uh, that's a that's you know we need a large counterweight <laughs> to change this balance. Well, Jennifer Marlin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Jennifer Marlin, who's a research scientist and lecturer at the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where she studies public perceptions of and responses to environmental change, particularly relating to climate and extreme weather events. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the nature of tornadoes and the greater frequency of them occurring in the winter rather than the spring. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is John Allen, who's a professor of meteorology in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Central Michigan University and a leading contributor to research on severe thunderstorm and tornado environments, particularly in the context of climate change. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Allen. Thank you very much, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And this tornado that hit on Friday night in a number of states. Well, there were a series of number of tornadoes hit in Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi, and Tennessee, the worst being in Kentucky. It was on the ground for 227 miles, and there are 64 known dead and over 100 unaccounted for. So it is a pretty horrendous situation. I guess the worst and deadliest and long-tracking tornado in the U.S. history was in 1925, the Tri-State Tornado. So how does this one compare to that in terms of how long it was on the ground? Uh, this is certainly on a similar order of magnitude to what we saw for the Tri-State Tornado. I mean, the Tri-State Tornado was uh, on, the, on the ground for around about three hours. Uh, we were seeing damage associated with that 
Um, it unfortunately moved along uh, a series of uh, a railway line and uh, hit a series of towns right after school got out. Um, so it was pretty much a worst case scenario from that perspective. Uh, in this case, we're looking at a tornado track. We still don't really have the full length worked out just yet. Um, it's certainly going to be in the top echelon um, if it doesn't exceed that particular milestone, uh, the 219 miles of the 1925 outbreak. Um, but uh, it's either way, I mean, we've got a, a significant area that's damaged by this tornado. Um, in terms of intensity, um, uh, probably on the same order of magnitude. It's very difficult to compare to some of the building standards historically uh, to those that we have now. Um, certainly the structures then might have been more vulnerable to it, uh, but we've seen a pretty widespread devastation associated with this long track tornado and indeed the outbreak in general. And there was a great deal of fear that a candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, which was one of the worst impacted towns, <clears throat> much of which was wiped off the map, for reasons I don't understand, there was a early warning um, sirens went off to evacuate. For some reason or other, the workers at the factory weren't allowed to evacuate. Do you know what happened there? Uh, I'm not really in a position to speculate exactly on what happened within that situation. I know that there'll probably be investigations into that particular topic. Um, whether they had adequate shelter available for them at the factory, um, I think, is another sort of relevant consideration or... Uh, you know, they're also at the time of year where apparently they were working late into the evening hours to try and meet customer demand for uh, candles. Um, and so you sort of had a, a worst case scenario where you had people in a building, um, whether they got the warning or didn't get the warning. Um, the, the, there were warnings in place about 20 minutes ahead. So it's not entirely clear what happened there. And I think there'll be a thorough investigation as to what occurred. But what seems to be different about these tornadoes that took place in the last few days? Here we have a, an unusual warm spell in winter, and the earlier tornadoes, including the 1925 one that we mentioned, they all happened basically in March, April or May. So that in itself is strange, isn't it, that we're having them in the winter instead of the spring? There's a saying that any day is a day where we could see a tornado uh, if the conditions are just right. And in this particular case, we had the conditions that really uh, favoured the development of strong tornadoes. Um, maybe not to, maybe we didn't anticipate the extent to having a one extremely long track tornado like this, but there were certainly the conditions in place for a, a storm outbreak, and that was anticipated a couple of days ahead by the Storm Prediction Centre. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's... Uh, difficult to say, uh, well, at least in terms of December, we've, we've had outbreaks like this before in December. Um, that's certainly not uh, unprecedented. There was an F5 tornado in 1957 on December 18 um, that uh, hit in Illinois and uh, completely destroyed a town. Um, and several other tornadoes in that outbreak on the order of about 20 or so tornadoes, which is actually not that dissimilar to the event here. Uh, the exception here being that we've had several of these much longer track tornadoes, which is a little bit more rare. Uh, that said, the conditions certainly were anomalous for December. We had 80 degree temperatures in Memphis. We had dew point temperatures much more like what you would see in places like Houston than perhaps uh, the mid-Mississippi Valley in December. And uh, if you've got those conditions in place uh, and with a very broad area of that, then the potential for long track tornadoes is certainly there. And that leads one to question the role of global warming, unusually warm weather in the winter. And that's certainly a very good question. Um, I think another factor that plays in is probably the present La Nina conditions. Um, we've done some work looking at uh, the relationship between tornadoes and La Nina, and particularly in December, January, February, um, there is a greater chance of having uh, tornadoes in this particular region. Uh, we see relatively warm temperatures through the southern part of the country in those years, which also favours the development of tornadoes on the edge of between where we're sort of between that cold and warm air. Uh, and so that's probably also playing into it. But um, from a global warming perspective, pinning down tornadoes is not a trivial task. Uh, tornadoes, even the largest tornadoes, are on the scale of a couple of kilometres. You know, we're not talking a very big, rather large features. Uh, instead, uh, what we have to do to sort of look at these into the future is actually uh, use the ingredients, those sort of conditions, that warm, muggy air, um, and another factor which we haven't talked about, which is... Uh, a vertical wind shear, the changing winds with height. You can think about it like if you look up at the clouds, you see the clouds going in one direction and then in another direction. Uh, 
um, that's wind shear. If you've got those two ingredients, you can sort of look at and start to think about, well, how are these factors that normally lead to storms that produce tornadoes going to change into the future? And there are certainly indications that um, there's an increasing likelihood, particularly in the fall, winter and early spring months. Um, but actually pointing uh, attribution for a single event to climate change is probably a little bit uh, not, not the best way to go because we really don't have the evidence to say, well, this event was caused by climate change. Climate change shouldn't be thought about as, you know, well, it's definitely causing, at least in the current context. Um, we're probably looking at more, it would increase the likelihood of that sort of event. But aren't we seeing more extreme weather events across the board, whether they're fires, floods, hurricanes and tornadoes? Uh, with tornadoes, uh, at least this year, we're actually below average, um, just mm -hmm. uh, just slightly below average. Um, so it's it's very difficult to say. The problem with tornado observations is you've got to have someone present to see it. Um, they're also very variable from year to year. You get highs and lows uh, on a, a fairly large base, uh, regular basis. So it's uh, at least historically, it's very hard to tell. We've seen some shifts that suggest maybe there's a shift in where we would find tornadoes more typically. Uh, for these environments southeastwards. So we're seeing more of a shift towards this sort of area, um, at least over the past couple of decades. Um, but it's a little too early, I think, to say to say specifically, yes, tornadoes are our response to this. We have, we really can't even say that for uh, some of the future projections. We have some sort of ideas pointing in directions, but I don't think the science is settled just yet. And again, I'm speaking with John Allen, who's Professor of Meteorology in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Central Michigan University and a leading contributor to research on severe thunderstorm and tornado environments, particularly in the context of climate change. So tornadoes then, these are vertical air columns that form when denser, drier, cold air is pushed over warmer, moist air creating a thunderstorm, and as the warm air rises, it creates an updraft with gusts of wind jostling that rising air in various speeds and directions, a condition, as you mentioned earlier, of, of known as wind shear. So what determines the ferocity of these tornadoes? Because this one that, you know, there are varying estimates whether it was on the ground for 250 miles or 227 miles, but particularly in Mayfield, Kentucky, uh, when it hit the candle factory. And it, it took a whole bunch of houses right off their foundations. So it must have been pretty intense. What determines the intensity of these tornadoes? So part of it is like thinking about... Um, uh, so part of what we need is relatively strong low-level wind shear. So that wind shear, particularly when it's in the lowest kilometre of the atmosphere... Um, can mean that we end up with a very, very strongly rotating storm. So the key thing here is basically you have a very strongly rotating storm and that wind shear allows that storm to be strongly rotating and basically act like a big vacuum cleaner. And then any sort of rotation at the surface is going to be stretched. And it's kind of like the ballerina effect, right? So the, if a, a ballerina spins around, she pulls her arms in, uh, the net effect of that is that uh, the rotation, her rotational speed in a pirouette increases. The same thing is true for, tornado, uh, for tornadoes. If you uh, intensify that sucking motion, effectively you're stretching that vortex and making it more intense. So in this particular case, um, You've got a very, very strong storm, which is one of the necessary ingredients. You've got more than adequate uh, vertical wind shear. Um, and particularly in that low level, there was very, very ample conditions. And you had it sustained for an extended period of time. And storms can get into this mode, which uh, becomes almost quasi-steady. Um, and they they sort of persist with this strong tornado. Uh, they can persist with these strong tornadoes. And the longer a tornado is persisting in this sort of environment, uh, the, the more greater likelihood there is of uh, impacting places that are places that are exposed to it. So, with uh, you know, if you've got a, a tornado on the ground for longer and longer, the more likely it is it hits a town. There are many intense tornadoes like this that just don't hit anything because they're in relatively rural or underpopulated areas. Well, apparently, at times in this tornado, I, I think it was in over Mayfield, Kentucky, that the wreckage that was sucked up by this tornado reached an altitude of 30,000 feet. Is that unusual? 
we haven't had a lot of we, observations for that sort of parameter are only available since 2011. So we haven't had a lot of uh, very intense tornadoes since that period, um, which has made it a little bit difficult to sort of look at well, how, you know, how significant that was. Uh, certainly, we've seen uh, debris transported hundreds of miles. Small debris like letters and checks have been found states away from where they were sucked up. Um, we've, in this case, we've seen uh, pictures sucked up and carried 150 miles. Um, so, you know, the, the debris being lofted up uh, is very indicative of a very strong tornado. And it is likely this tornado will probably rate as violent, uh, that being F4, EF4, EF5 uh, in, in intensity. So the opening sequence in The Wizard of Oz with the farmhouse and then the cows floating through the air, that's not an exaggeration? Uh, we definitely know that there is evidence of cows floating through the air. I mean, we've seen people picked up and thrown significant distances, um, people being thrown in dark bathtubs, um, cars. So in this particular tornado, we do know that cars were picked up and thrown significant distances. Um, it knocked down a water tower. Um, how exactly it did that, I have no idea, but it certainly uh, was a fairly impre impressive piece of damage. Um, when any sort of vehicle is being thrown, those tend to be only the things we see in the very high-end tornadoes. I mean, you know, uh, during the Greensburg tornado in 2007, uh, a pickup truck bounced off the water tower. Um, you know, that, that you could, just gives you some idea of how strong the winds are associated with these storms. So given that this is uh, happening regularly, and normally it happens in the spring, but now it's happening in the in the winter as well. I mean, people must be used to it. We know about the early warnings that did happen. I think the early warnings in the at the Amazon warehouse that collapsed in Illinois was only what eleven minutes or so. But there was plenty of warning in Mayfield. Apparently, you think that these parts of the country were used to it. So, what's the problem with not, people not being able to get into shelters? Is there inadequate number of shelters or I mean you'd think over the years protocols would have been developed uh, so that's a very good question um, I think the issue uh, that's at hand here is we've got a nocturnal tornado and we know that nocturnal tornadoes tend to cause greater fatalities partly because people are not necessarily aware you know it's going through in the middle of the night maybe you're asleep maybe you're asleep you got home from work you went to sleep you didn't necessarily think to check if there was severe weather coming um, and yes, while tornado sirens can go over, um, while you might get a notification to your phone, that doesn't necessarily mean that you got the warning. And we know that that occurred, at least in some cases here. Um, uh, there's also an issue of uh, the, you know, where you are in the country may influence whether you have a storm shelter or not. Um, through the Great Plains, where tornadoes happen on a yearly basis and we get regular tornado, we have regular tornado warnings, the vast majority of houses have storm shelters. Um, through this part of the country, that frequency goes down. Um, and part of that is because it, tornadoes are simply rarer. And if you have uh, limited resources uh, and you have an event that maybe only happens once every 20 or 30 years and maybe it doesn't hit your house, uh, are you going to necessarily build a storm shelter for that scenario? We know that storm shelters make a huge difference um, in survivability. Um, for high-end tornadoes, uh, for example, in the Greensburg, Kansas event, they only had a few fatalities. Um, and the, partly the reason for that was that the vast majority of people uh, had storm shelters available to them. So in this particular case, uh, less shelters were available, and that probably played a significant role in the fatalities seen. And just in closing, apparently the, the areas affected now are moving further to the east. Is that right? Yeah, there's some evidence we've seen in the past couple of decades uh, that has suggested the environments that are favourable to tornadoes developing have been shifting somewhat eastwards, uh, particularly in the winter months more so than the other seasons. So uh, th there is at least uh, some indication that this means we're going to have more tornadoes over an area with a, a fairly large population uh, compared to what it was in, say, the 1950s. That area's population has been expanding over the past few decades. And that means even if climate change didn't affect tornadoes, um, and we didn't see an increase to frequency, uh, we would see more people who are potentially vulnerable and therefore greater impacts when tornadoes do occur. Well, John Allen, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with John Allen, who's a professor of meteorology in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Central Michigan University and a leading contributor to research on severe thunderstorm and tornado environments, particularly in the context of climate change. We can take a brief station break and we're back looking into the milestone of 800,000 deaths now recorded in the U.S. as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
with a greater percentage of them this year due to the Delta variant. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes and blown out on the trail. Hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the corn Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Boyke, who's a director of the Global Health Program and Senior Fellow for Global Health, Economics, and Development at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a professor of law at Georgetown University. He's the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways, and the founder and managing editor of Think Global Health, an online magazine that examines the way health shapes economies, societies, and everyday lives around the world. And he has a recent article at the Wall Street Journal, Getting Vaccines to the World Next Time. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Boyke. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the United States on Sunday reached the 800,000 corona death milestone. And it turns out that there have been more people died this year than did in 2020, largely, I guess, due to the more contagious Delta variant. And it seems that it took 111 days uh, for U.S. deaths to jump from 600,000 to 700,000, according to an analysis from Reuters. But the next 100,000 deaths just took 73 days. So is it possible that we are heading in the wrong direction here in terms of casualties? We may be. Uh, Most movies or novels around a dangerous disease outbreak end with scientists discovering a cure or a vaccine which people line up to receive. Uh, Sadly, in this pandemic, it has been at that point where the discovery of a vaccine has occurred where the largest number of deaths have occurred worldwide, not just in the United States. And it's a clear lesson that in not just this pandemic, but future pandemics, vaccines need to be made faster and greater volumes and more widely distributed globally, Um, particularly with what we're seeing with the emergence of a new uh, variant, uh, Omicron. Obviously, there's more data yet to emerge, but it does seem that it is more transmissible And given the large number of Americans that have still yet to be vaccinated, I am concerned that we are uh, moving in the wrong direction. But most of the deaths this year are among the unvaccinated. So how do you deal with that? You've got vaccine resistance. You've got a former president out there who got COVID and apparently had a very serious bout of it. He's out there and everybody's out there on the far fringes of uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, what percentage of the population? Is this some kind of impenetrable group of people that as long as you have unvaccinated people, my understanding is that you can't get rid of this damn thing? Yeah. So I I do think the way to think about it from a vaccination standpoint is less around whether we can get population immunity and more around the point you raised, whether we can protect ourselves. And these vaccines are useful primarily for protecting serious illness, hospitalization, or death. And it's really important that we reach uh, every American uh, who's eligible with that. Uh, The U.S. has uh, led, as you know, the process to discover and develop these vaccines. We now rank 67th in the world on vaccination rates, our fully vaccination rates. So we, we've recently passed over 60%, but we are still still quite low. We need people to be boosted as well, because that does seem like it's going to be important with this, with this latest variant. I don't know if people are beyond reach. You are seeing vaccination rates slowly climb up, but we need to see leadership, and that leadership needs to be bi- bipartisan. And unfortunately, we haven't received that yet. So there is the divide, right? It's a deadly divide. But you also, as you've written about in your article at the Wall Street Journal, getting vaccines to the world next time, we can now develop vaccines at record speed in response to pandemics, but we need new ways to distribute them to everyone on the planet. So the other divide, of course, is that 
there have been more than 6.6 billion doses. 94% of the COVID-19 vaccinations have been administered outside of the global compact of COVAX, which was designed to get the vaccine out to parts of the world, the less developed parts of the world. So we're here in the United States are among the, I mean, for example, you point out in your article, there's a higher percentage of people in Britain who have received their third dose than have received their first doses in Africa, Canada, Japan and the US are expected to vaccinate small children before Ethiopia and Nigeria will vaccinate their health workers and high-risk elderly. So there's the, there's the other divide. It is. And, you know, we, we still don't know where the origins of the of this latest variant Omicron is from, but the risk of under vaccination globally and its potential uh, for being the basis for emergence of dangerous variants, everyone knew this. This was well publicized. Um, We have just been so slow to act. So to date, uh, just 10 countries have administered more than two thirds of all the doses worldwide, less than 8% of the population on the continent of Africa have received their first dose, 7% in low-income countries, the poorest into, uh, poorest countries. It is important that with the emergence of variants that we populations or people that are most at risk use boosters, but they're now consuming 20% of all the doses administered worldwide. If you see a modified vaccine needed for this latest variant, it's gonna put further demands on vaccine manufacturing. So I'm afraid heading into the new year, this is another way in which we may be moving in the wrong direction. People expected us to be able to pivot to addressing global needs by now. And it seems that because of our our failure to be uh, aggressive in this regard, earlier in the pandemic, we are continually having to go back and make up for the fact that we didn't address global vaccine needs with adopting new measures to protect our own people. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Boyke, who's director of the Global Health Program and a senior fellow for Global Health Economics and Development at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a professor of law at Georgetown University. His books include Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways, and he's the founder and managing editor of Think Global Health, an online magazine that examines the ways health shapes economies, societies, and everyday lives around the world. And he has a recent article at the Wall Street Journal, Getting Vaccines to the World Next Time. Now, there are some efforts underway, I take it, to get vaccines out to the rest of the world. And apparently Moderna has announced plans to build a 500 million dose mRNA vaccine production facility in Africa. But what is the timeline here? I mean, I would think that there are two factors here, Thomas. One is the time it takes to build it. Two, actually, the expertise that would have to be exported to these countries. And three, a distribution mechanism to get the vaccines out to the people in the country, which may be in itself quite a difficult task. Yeah, so I would consider there two two goals that need to be met here. One is that we um, manufacture and distribute uh, doses more equitably uh, globally as soon as possible. Um, and that can be done in a number of different ways. Uh, some of it by maybe building more manufacturing, some of it may be expanding existing manufacturing, and that actually may be faster. The second issue is, you know, as I mentioned before, just 10 countries are administering most of the world's doses. And if you're not in one of those 10 countries, of course, governments are watching this and they don't want to be in this situation again in the future. They don't want to be uh, one of the countries left out from vaccines in a health crisis. So some of what you're seeing from Moderna is more around addressing that second concern, building a long-term capacity in Africa to address crisis needs. Uh, That needs to be paired with efforts to build up manufacturing where it already exists so that we can make more as fast as possible. We also need to invest in distribution um, because sadly we've been very slow to do that. And countries are receiving doses with little prior announcement near expiration and then being asked to distribute them to their population 
um, very quickly without support. And we, we need to we need to do better in that regard. So are vaccines expiring here in the rich countries before they get to the I mean, it's bad enough what you just told us, but I've heard reports that there are some expiration of vaccines here in the United States. Absolutely. Um, some of that has been publicized. Uh, not surprisingly, governments are not uh, releasing data on overall expired doses that have uh, occurred worldwide, but there is certainly an indication that it has been happening. And given the limited of global supplies, it's uh, limitations of global supplies, it's another indictment. But honestly, what I think has been the real problem in this case is this failure to anticipate and invest in a timely way for future needs. It is not a surprise that we would have to vaccinate, uh, have this concern about vaccinating the world. Respiratory viruses have uh, mutated and you see these emergence of variants um, all the time. This risk was known. What should have been done is at the same time that we established U.S. production, we should have seen investment happening to expand for global production. We could have done both at the same time to add additional production lines. And we are very slow to do that. Same has been true for the Europeans as well and other nations. We just have been very slow to anticipate global needs and what it might mean at home. So the Chinese are moving now, apparently, to manufacture the mRNA. Their vaccines, uh, Sinovacs, I can't remember the name of the other one, they've been pretty good at distributing them around the world, have they not? But they're not particularly effective. Uh, they're not. And they've still been slow to release data on it, their effectiveness uh, as well as their safety. Um, and that's been a problem. I, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm uh, working global health. I think the more the vaccines provided, they're established as uh, safe and effective and manufactured in a way that assures their quality. I think the more vaccines, the better, particularly in a crisis. Um, China has a little ways to go to establish that as a matter of course. And we'll see what happens with their latest uh, mRNA vaccine. I'm hopeful that they, or I hope rather, that they are a bit more transparent uh, with the data that emerges from that development. But they obviously have a pretty robust production capability. They do. It's been remarkable how quickly they stood up. What I don't think most people uh, know is China was not a uh, particularly large vaccine manufacturer before this pandemic. They have gone from being a country that exported almost no vaccines to last year being the largest exporter of vaccines in the world. And that is a significant shift. Um, and again, there's there's a lot to admire about that, except uh, they uh, didn't necessarily comply with international regulatory requirements on how to oversee those vaccines. And it has made us slow to be able to identify problems like have been observed around their diminished uh, uh, effectiveness. And India used to be the world's biggest supply of vaccines, but it's been slow to vaccinate its own population. I think it's about 35% now. And the, the Delta variant emerged out of India as well. What's the problem there? So... Um, India's problem was that they they also underinvested. They assumed that the government assumed earlier in the crisis that the India had done reasonably well and that they would India would continue to do reasonably well. And for that reason, there was a scale up of vaccine manufacturing in India. But it was largely paid for by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other global donors. And it was meant to address global needs. And then what happened is the Delta variant emerged and cases started to spike in India. And that led the government to restrict the export of those vaccine doses. 
there has been more investment over time in Indian vaccine manufacturing, but it has been slow to come. And India just a couple of weeks ago delivered its first shipments since April uh, to this multilateral vaccine initiative. Um, and that has really cost us in terms of the global response. The time between April and December when uh, those vaccines weren't leaving India because they were being used at home really cost the global vaccination effort. But your article at the uh, Wall Street Journal getting vaccines to the world next time points out that few vaccines are produced start to finish in a single factory and that the Pfizer vaccine, for example, is manufactured from 280 ingredients and components that are made in facilities scattered across the US and Western Europe. So we're talking about the need for some kind of cross-border trade agreements, don't we, to both facilitate the current need for vaccines and having all these different parts coming back and forth from different countries. Is there any way to fast-track that or improve that system? Well, hopefully, uh, the World Trade Organization was meant to consider that very issue in uh, December and it's um, in the, several weeks ago. And it is with some irony uh, that this latest variant that emerged from under vaccination has now postponed that conversation. So it looks like that meeting will occur in March instead. Here's why the cross-border issues are important. Um, no country, as you rightly suggested, can make vaccines on their own, but many of the countries that are looking to make them in the future are even smaller markets than the U.S. So if you're going to scale up production around the world of vaccines, you need countries to be able to rely on one another so that uh, they, you can manufacture the different parts of those vaccines and assemble them across borders. Um, and what the challenge is, is in a crisis, we have seen countries refuse to export and hoard supplies for their own. So we just talked about India refusing to export its vaccines once their crisis, domestic crisis happened. Um, early in the pandemic, countries hoarded uh, masks and other personal protective equipment and ventilators. Uh, because of that, countries are reluctant to invest in production in other nations, and that has made the scale up of manufacturing of vaccines slow because countries try to do as much of it on their own as possible, and it, it has made it slow, slower than it needs to be. Well, Thomas Boyke, I thank you for joining us and for pointing out these problems with the need to get vaccines into arms around the world and not just here in the United States. We have seemed to have an ideological problem in the United States, plenty of vaccines, but not a willingness for all of the population to take them. And then in contrast, the rest of the world is desperately needs it, but we're not stepping up to the plate globally. Indeed, Ian. Let's hope for a better 2022. And thanks again for having me on. And uh, best wishes to you for the new year and your listeners. Well, thank you very much, Thomas. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Boyke, who is Director of the Global Health Program and Senior Fellow for Global Health Economics and Development at the Council on Foreign Relations and also a Professor of Law at Georgetown University. He's the author of Plagues and the Paradox of Progress, Why the World is Getting Healthier in Worrisome Ways, and the founder and managing editor of Think Global Health, an online magazine that examines the way health shapes economies, societies, and everyday life around the world. And he has a recent article at the Wall Street Journal, Getting Vaccines to the World Next Time. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our nonprofit 
Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in One more